Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford. You can find out more about Worldview at worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Miles Traer. For decades, climate scientists involved with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, have grown increasingly confident in the conclusion that climate change is a result of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. Humans are causing global warming, and we've known this for a while now. In the past, much of the focus of the IPCC reports was on mitigation, or trying to forestall worsening climate change. But the most recent report, which came out in late 2015, had a slight but important shift in focus towards adaptation. Climate change is already upon us and getting worse. So who's going to be the most affected? And why are some people more vulnerable than others? On today's show, we're featuring Petra Charkert. She was one of the coordinating authors in the most recent report on a completely new chapter about livelihoods and poverty. The interview was conducted by producer Mike Osborne and one of our students, Sarah McCurdy. My name is Petra Chuckert, and I'm now with the University of Western Australia. By training, I'm a geographer. I'm a human environment geographer. I'm interested in the interactions between people and the environment. And I'm particularly interested in how people who live at the margin of society, and that may be the ecological margin, but also the institutional, economic, political margin, how people who live at the margin of society make a living, how they sustain their livelihoods, and how we as researchers who have a voice can increase and enhance well-being among populations who live at the margin of society. I mean, sort of right off the bat, I'm hearing a lot of different disciplines. I hear geography, I think space, and I think, you know, 
maps. <laughs> I hear, <laughs> I hear uh, social well-being. I think of you know sociology and sort of cultural norms. I mean, all of that is there, I suppose. I think you're quite right. Um, so yes, I am by training a geographer, but I did my PhD in arid lands resource sciences. Um, I have this affinity for drylands, and they make me feel very comfortable, which is surprising because I'm from Austria originally, so no drylands nowhere. But I just feel comfortable in wide open space. Um, but I did a minor there in applied anthropology, which probably explains my interest in people, inequalities, marginalization. Um, I've never been trained in climate science per se, but I've interacted with a bunch of climate scientists over the years. So I have developed a certain vocabulary that allows me to interact with people who come much more from a quantitative, hardcore science perspective than I do. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that when you talk about, you know, vulnerabilities and people, I kind of think that a lot of those are cultural and political and, um, you know, have deep historical roots. Um, but there's also increasingly vulnerabilities from environmental stressors. So, I mean, broadly, we're talking about all of that. <laughs> what we have seen in the literature over the last 10 to 15 years is a shift, a shift from an impact focus in climate change to a vulnerability focus. And let me explain what that means. Yeah, right? please. Yeah. So when we talk about an impact focus, we think about, well, what is the impact of an extreme event like a flood? on people? Or what is, the, what is the impact of sea level rise on people, on ecosystems, on certain sectors, on certain countries? So the focus is on the hazard. The focus is on the flood. The focus is on sea level rise. Now our understanding is a little, little bit different. So we understand now that risk from climate change emerges when we have a specific climate hazard again, sea level rise or an extreme event, coupled with exposure to that specific hazard and vulnerability that is intrinsic, that is systemic, that is societal. And it is often independent of that climate hazard. Hmm. So we have vulnerable people because they have been marginalized or have fallen through the cracks in their in their own societies because of increasing inequalities, because of uneven development pathways. So people have no voice. People have no access to resources. People are without a job. People are without a safe home because of social policies, because of institutional mechanisms that don't allow them to participate as full and fully recognized elements of society. And that's what creates vulnerability. Mm. And so people are vulnerable not because a climate hazard occurs, but because they don't have the ability to protect themselves during any kind of crisis. This may be a climatic crisis, but it could also be a political crisis, an economic crisis. And so there's much more interest now in this type of vulnerability, the systemic societal vulnerability, and how that then plays out under climate change. I'm curious about how this developed. When did you begin thinking about moving away from the impact assessments to the vulnerability perspective? Um, my initial interest in climate change was actually on the mitigation side. 
I wrote my dissertation on carbon sequestration, on how small-scale farmers in Senegal, in the Sahel, in drylands, could potentially participate in emerging carbon schemes 15 years ago. Just to be clear, so that's to say that, you know, there might have been a mechanism by which people in Senegal might be able to participate in carbon markets uh, via carbon sequestration? That's correct. So we understand carbon sequestration is the capturing, the sequestering of carbon that is in the air and storing it in ecosystems. Now, for farmers in the Sahel, of course, carbon sequestration as a term means absolutely nothing. But understanding carbon as soil fertility is what they do, and that's what they're concerned about. So yes, it meant how farmers could participate and benefit from carbon schemes, carbon prices, and get credit, get actually monetary credit for the carbon they would sequester through improved fallow systems, through reforestation, through agroforestry practices. So that's what I did originally. And then it became increasingly difficult to get these carbon schemes off the ground, especially for a bunch of smallholders who are, you know, poorly organized. And for anybody who wanted to invest in carbon schemes, of course, it made little sense to work with 10,000 farmers if, by comparison, they could work with one large landholder. So then my interest started to grow in the area of vulnerability. And again, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the storyline was all about impact. What I found so frustrating was that a focus on impacts and a focus on vulnerability that is linked to an impact really devalues people's experiences and people's storylines. It doesn't pay any attention to how flexible people are to navigate crisis, the various strategies they try and experiment with. And it doesn't capture either how differentially successful people are in adapting to a crisis. So I actually found, and I'm not alone in this, that vulnerability studies are in fact crippling because they assign a certain, very often, they assign a certain vulnerability index to an entire population and don't really investigate what adaptive potential there is in a certain population. So people become branded as highly vulnerable or an entire region gets branded as highly vulnerable. Why? Because that may attract funding, but it really cripples and devalues people's creativity and ability to cope. So I got much more interested. I shifted from vulnerability studies to studies of adaptive capacities that I think is much more proactive, much more empowering, and in the end, probably where we need to go anyway. Are there particular examples or case studies that sort of help illustrate, you know, some of these ideas? Well, I've worked quite a bit in West Africa over the last 15 years as well. And so Um, We just finished a fantastic project funded by the National Science Foundation through a program called Human and Social Dynamics that looks at decision-making, risk, and uncertainty. And our project was called ALCAR, Anticipatory Learning for Climate Change Adaptation and Resilience. Anticipatory learning. Anticipatory learning. What does that mean? It's quite (laughs) fantastic, right? So anticipatory, of course, means forward-looking. And the entire idea was framed around a very simple thought. We all learn best when we are hurt through a crisis, right? We know not to touch the oven when it's hot, but only once we've burned ourselves. Now, 
in the climate change debate, it's unethical to make people go through a crisis and then expect that people learn from that crisis to adapt more rapidly, use different strategies, right? So it's unethical to force people to go through a shock and learn from that shock. Anticipatory learning allows us to envision, to anticipate potential future shocks and stressors and prepare for them before harm occurs. So this was a project where we worked with four communities in Ghana and four communities in Tanzania, all of them rural, some based on fishing as a major livelihood, some based on agriculture as a major livelihood, some migrant communities. And we used participatory scenario building, envisioning how the community could look like in 25, 30 years from now through stories, through narratives. And people got really excited about envisioning their future and how their kids would live and what potential changes would happen, you know, in, in terms of economics, whether or not there would be a factor in the community, but also in terms of climate. And through envisioning these narratives, these storylines, people then started to say, well, this is actually a really good future. This is what we need to do today to get on the path to reach this particular future. Or, opposite, this is a really detrimental future. We absolutely do not want to go there. So what are the strategies we have to undertake today to prevent going down that slippery slope. Mm. And that was fascinating, right? Because it allowed people to have ownership over their own future, even if they're uncertain. This approach sort of uh, facilitates more action, more pathways for what to do next. Is that fair? It's more action, more pathways, but it's also the ability in people who we label as vulnerable to take action, right? It's confidence in people. Very often, mm -hmm. and, you know, recognizing your own potential. And I've seen that over and over again, and that's not only the case in West Africa or East Africa. It's also the case in disadvantaged communities in the U.S. and Europe. People who live at the margin of society are told over and over again through institutions, through the way people talk about the poor, that they are useless and uneducated and ignorant and old-fashioned and backwards. And we want to reverse that discourse, right? We want people to feel comfortable about what they do know because there's a tremendous amount of wealth that we often, coming in as outsiders, don't even recognize. And so recognizing that knowledge, valuing this knowledge, and validating it gives people much more courage and confidence in their own abilities. And I think this is an absolutely fundamental part of what we call adaptive capacity. You've got to be one of the most like uh, upbeat and hopeful IPCC authors <laughs> I've talked to in a long time. I mean, actually, I do want to transition the conversation to learn about uh, the, this chapter that uh, you're a lead uh, author on. I want to know a little bit of the backstory of how this particular chapter came about, because there does seem to be in, in the most recent IPCC report a greater emphasis on on these uh, dimensions that you talked about in terms of hazard and, and vulnerability and risk. But in, in general, the headlines seem to be more about adaptation than mitigation because that's the cold, hard reality. And I think that that's the context under which this new chapter emerged. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So let me clarify first what that new chapter is. Please. So I was coordinating lead author on Chapter 13 
livelihoods and poverty. So what is the impact of climate change on livelihoods and poverty? And indeed, that was one of the new chapters in the fifth assessment report. Other new chapters were chapter 12, human security, and then four chapters on adaptation. And you're quite right. This is a major shift from the AR4, the fourth assessment report that came out in 2007, that had essentially two key chapters that involved human dimensions. And what's interesting about the IPCC chapters is that not only do they summarize the state of the art knowledge at a certain point in time, they also identify gaps in knowledge. And so one of the gaps identified was that we really don't know enough about livelihoods. We don't know enough about the dynamics of livelihoods. And we really don't know enough about who is socially and economically disadvantaged and why. And so what happens from one report to the next is that a group of people comes together uh, involving authors, old authors, potentially new authors, people from the governments, to identify in a what is called a scoping meeting what the new chapters ought to be. And it became clear in 2008 or 9 when that scoping meeting happened that there was an immensely growing literature on adaptation. So adaptation deserved, in fact, four chapters in the fifth assessment report. And there was also a growing literature on the human dimensions, on livelihoods that needed to be assessed. And so our chapter, Livelihoods and Poverty, resulted from that scoping exercise. And we had a specific mandate, which I think is, was, is still fantastic, to address not only poverty, but also marginalization and gender and explain poverty not just in economic terms, who is economically poor, but link it to a much larger spectrum of disadvantage and deprivation. And that's exactly where we went in our chapter. Do you worry about potentially losing some um, people in the conversation because you touch on these broader issues that can potentially be pretty divisive? Um, No, I'm not worried at all. I think we have reached a point in time where people understand that poverty, A, is not just economic, and I will explain what I mean by that. And I think we have also reached a point in time where people understand that we need to, what I call, unpack vulnerability and inequality to drill down at what's creates vulnerability, what creates uneven development structures in a society. So I think the time is ripe for that. For example, there's a growing literature on gender and climate change, and I'm very happy that we have that growing literature on the impacts of climate change on gender, how it differentially affects men and women. But of course, we also understand that gender doesn't exist in isolation, right? So I happen to be a woman, but I also happen to be a white woman, and I also happen to be an educated and privileged woman. So if people say climate change affects women more than it affects men, I will say, but wait a moment. It doesn't affect me necessarily more than a poor man in Bangladesh. This is just wrong. This is just limited. So I think we have reached a point in time where we understand that we cannot look at at elements of inequality or identity like gender in isolation from race, from ethnicity, from age, from class, from caste, from ability or disability. So I think we understand that. However, 
And we have seen that in the IPCC review process. So what happens is, you know, we write our chapters, they go through four stages of review. At a certain point, governments come in as well and review. Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, um, <laughs> it sounds very trying. I'm sorry. Anyway. Well, I'll tell you more about the fun. You know, we actually have to respond to every single reviewer's question, address it in a gigantic Excel sheet. I mean, it's massive. It's massive. If we academics complain when we send out an article for review and we get three reviewers who have contradictory voices, nothing. Peanuts compared to the review process on the IPCC. But for example, right, we had Germany in the governmental review express a very clear concern with our usage of the term race, saying we should take race out of our text because race is not a determinant of inequality or vulnerability, arguing, of course, from a very dramatic German history, mm. arguing that we all understand that we are all one race. And we had to respond by saying this is actually not what we encounter in the climate change debate. Race, as we know, is a major determinant of vulnerability, for example, in the U.S. If we look at the heat wave in Chicago in 1995, we know that those who died were primarily African-American, male, older male. So we have three identifiers of vulnerability, race, gender, and age. Why? Because they were the socially most isolated members of society. And so actually to back up from that just a little bit, one thing that strikes me as very difficult in putting together a chapter like this is that we're talking about the whole planet. And there's a lot of different demographic variables to consider and, and maybe specific in one culture or one country or one region or one climate system. So, you know, I, I'm sure it's extremely difficult to make broad generalizations. But what are some of the big lessons that emerged from from the synthesis of all the research that's out there, especially given that this research in some ways is fairly young? So our job was to extract as best as possible these various drivers of vulnerability. The problem we faced is that gender is highly represented in the literature. There are hundreds of pieces of evidence that now confirm that women are differentially affected than men, right? So very often, for example, if in Bangladesh women are culturally and socially not allowed to swim, they never learn how to swim because it's not appropriate for a woman to swim. Well, you can imagine that this makes a woman more vulnerable in the case of a flood or a storm surge, mm. no doubt. Um, what we also see is that there's a growing literature, even though it's much smaller than the one on women, is that during certain climatic extremes, men are actually more vulnerable. We've seen that in the case of Hurricane Mitch, for example, in a Latin American culture of machismo, where men have to be heroic, have to save their families. And so in the case of Mitch, actually more men than women lost their lives because they tried to save their own families and other families. But except for gender, there isn't a whole lot of literature on race, on caste, on ethnicity. Age. Yeah. Age, right? So this is a major gap. We've seen some literature that comes back to extreme events like Hurricane Katrina, of course, where we see age and race represented, but otherwise not a whole lot, major gap. 
We also saw that there is very, very little information in the existing literature that looks at poverty in the global north. Right? We still assume that poor people are primarily in poor countries, which is actually no longer true. We see the largest number of poor people in middle-income countries. And that has to do with the fact that countries like India and Pakistan and Indonesia have graduated from low-income countries to middle-income countries. So this is where we see a massive amount of poverty. So even though these countries have, you know, quote-unquote graduated, they still have a very large poor population in, in, in middle-income countries. More so than in low-income countries. Right. So but I think this is surprising to people. That is surprising. And we see absolutely no literature on poor people in high-income countries and how they are affected by climate change, except for, again, cases like Katrina or the heat wave in Chicago, as well as the heat wave in 2003 in Europe that you know killed 70,000 people. And so our job is to say, can we broaden that literature? Can we look at what we call from you know a feminist theoretical perspective, intersectionality, the intersecting dimensions of inequality? Can we find case studies that look at gender and caste at the same time? We have one from Nepal, one. There must be more out there. It's difficult to conduct these studies, but I think we want to see many, many more of these studies coming out over the next couple of years, as well as studies that look at poverty and inequality in the US, in Europe, in places like Australia, Japan, because that's largely lacking. So I want to return to this concept of intersectionality and unpack that a little bit in a second. But I do want to, uh, I mean, one thing you said, or at least one thing I heard, is that there is a reasonably rich body of research out there about gender and vulnerability. And, you know, you offered the example from Hurricane Mitch in Central America and and Bangladesh. I, I think maybe some more examples might be helpful here because I imagine that there's still probably people out there who might be, you know, scratching their heads a little bit about uh, how women are disproportionate, or men for that matter, how some genders might be disproportionately affected or vulnerable to climate. So one of my favorite case studies, or if you want favorite in the sense of most compelling, is a case study conducted by colleagues in Australia, Margaret Alston and Carrie Wittenbury, who have looked at the impact of the 10-year drought in Australia. Australia has gone through a massive 10-year drought and then followed by a series of floods within a very short period of time. So Margaret and Carrie looked at the impacts of the drought on farmers in the Murray-Darling Basin, so very rich agricultural area. Farmers were particularly affected by the drought, not just because farming is climate sensitive, but also because of a political decision to make the water that became more and more scarce, to give priority to urban uses and industry rather than farming communities. So they lost extensive access to water. Now, that had impacts on men and on women. And so the work that Carrie and Margaret carried out showed that men's job was primarily to take care of frail animals and to slaughter their own animals that they had raised and cherished and nourished for, I don't know, years. And the psychological and mental impact on slaughtering their own animals was so severe that men fell actually much more so than women into severe depression, which then increased the risk and the number, the actual number of suicide among male farmers. 
Women, on the other hand, had very often had to leave their farm to take on jobs in nearby towns or cities. And because of that, had access to a larger social network so women could chat more with other women who also came from other farms, which seemed to increase their resilience, if you want. Just having an outlet for their frustration and depression saved them from that downward spiral that they saw their husbands were entrenched in. And so, you know, who was better off at that point does not matter. Who was affected more does not matter. But it does show that the impacts were different, right? Mm. And to me, this is the most compelling case study because it shows us that nobody's actually immune, right? We're not talking about the poorest of the poor in Sudan. We're talking about a fairly well-established community in white community in Australia that nonetheless suffered severe consequences. And so I think it's incredible to be a social scientist in the field of climate change right now because it's up to us to unravel these complex dynamics, right? It's up to us to demonstrate that all kinds of knowledge actually counts when we talk about climate impacts. And what we see right now, and this is what I find really, really interesting, it's a term called epistemologies of ignorance, right? (laughs) Cool term. It's what we willfully do not want to know. Race is part of that, right? We don't want to talk about race because we don't want to admit that it still exists. In the previous IPCC special report on extreme events, I was not part of it, but a colleague told me that the government of India wrote, take out the term caste. Caste does not exist. That's an epistemology of ignorance, right? That willful omission of something that we know is out there, that we know happens, and we know exactly that power structures sustain caste or race. Well, it's our job to unravel these dynamics and put them to the fore and say, this is how it happens. And here are the pieces of evidence, even if we can't capture them in climate records, right? That's the purpose. Because otherwise, your adaptation policies will be wrong, will be misleading, will only be useful to the most affluent people of society and don't reach those who actually need adaptation, investment policies, programs most. So we've talked a lot about all different kinds of socially marginalized people. I'm just wondering what your hopes are from the public sector, from the private sector, by releasing this report beyond gaining an understanding for what a research agenda looks like. Um, What do you think that this research will prompt people to, to go for? I think along two lines here. So one has to do with policies and the other one has to do with how we act as members of society, right? And so this is something I I want to throw out as well. It's probably a new term, but I think it's really useful in the way we deal with poverty and inequality and stressing these social dimensions that, that shape vulnerability. And that term is relational poverty. So let me explain what that means and why this sustains my hopes. So, you know, very often we understand poverty or the poor as a category that is out there. It's not us, right? It's them, the others out there. And we kind of imagine them as somewhere out there and we can draw a line around them and point to them, say it's them and they are vulnerable. Well, relational poverty reminds us that 
we create poverty through our privilege. And that may sound a little abstract, so let me give you an example of what that means and why creating policies that are based on that concept of relational poverty is really important. So here's the story. It was in the news last year, just before Christmas, in France. Happened in France. So just before Christmas, a couple of days before Christmas, it was really cold in France. A cold snap, right? Not too surprising. And we know that people who are most vulnerable to cold snaps are usually people who are homeless, who are on the streets, who sleep outside in France, in Paris. They are known as clochards. And so, of course, these are the first who are vulnerable, who try to seek some heat somewhere just to keep them warm. So what they did, not surprisingly, was to seek benches in front of, well, anywhere benches, but particularly benches in front of shopping centers that were heated or the shopping centers were heated. And so you had some radiative heat coming from the shopping centers. Well, turns out the more affluent, the richer members of society who went shopping in the shopping centers just before Christmas complained about the people who were sitting or sleeping on the benches because it ruined their Christmas shopping experience. Guess what? St city government decided to fence those benches so that the poor and homeless could not sleep or sit on these benches. That's relational poverty. Our privilege, the need to sustain our privilege often means exacerbating the conditions the poor people are already in. Completely unacceptable, right? So we need policies that are more socially aware that do not exacerbate disadvantage and deprivation that already exists, right? Relational poverty. Another example would be from the U.S. We know areas that are prone and exposed to sea level rise need protection, need adaptation. Turns out that what is economically more or most effective is to protect areas where rich people live because the cost of loss is so much higher than the cost of loss in areas where poor people live. So the areas where poor people live in that would need adaptation and protection most are probably going to be abandoned because it's not worth investing in it, right? So that's another example of how we actually create and sustain poverty because of unequal policies. So my hope is that our report that clearly highlights and emphasizes inequality and marginalization as a driver of, of vulnerability gets policymakers thinking about how social policies are created and enacted. We can't build levees or walls against sea level rise everywhere, but we can reduce the vulnerability in our own populations and we can facilitate how we reach out or not reach out to poor people and how our decisions can affect our neighbors. And I think that's what makes me hopeful. Petra Chackett, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you both. Our show is produced by Leslie Chang, Mike Osborne, and me, Miles Traer. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. 
We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter, at genanthropocene. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.